But he probably just had really entered into a, loop, a new level of maturity that was welcomed by teammates, coaches, and everyone else, and fans. And uh, boom, snuffed out. Snuffed out in a second. That was former USA Today NFL writer Skip Wood talking to me about the murder of Washington Redskins safety Sean Taylor. His death 10 years ago consumed D.C. area sports news at the time and led to the long-awaited convictions of five murder defendants. That story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Later in this episode, I'll discuss the shooting death of Sean Taylor, a Miami native and All-American for the University of Miami Hurricanes, and later a first-round draft pick of the Washington Redskins. Taylor, who was voted to two Pro Bowls during his short career, was shot in his home November 26, 2007, by 17-year-old Eric Rivera, who was one of five males who had broken into the house while Taylor, his girlfriend, and their 18-month-old daughter were asleep in bed. It took eight years for all five defendants to be convicted and sentenced. And now, ten years after his death, Taylor's life and football legacy are still celebrated across South Florida and Washington, D.C. Coming up, I'll discuss the capture of a Jacksonville-area teen possibly wanted for murder. He was detained Friday while trying to cross the border into Canada. Logan Tyler Mott, a 15-year-old high school student from Neptune Beach, was detained by U.S. Customs and Border Protection late Friday when he tried to enter Canada near Buffalo, New York. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office announced Mott's capture via Twitter around 11 p.m. Deputies said Mott was being looked after by his 53-year-old grandmother, Christina June French, while his father was on vacation. The teen's father, Eric Mott, is employed as a Jacksonville Sheriff's Office corrections officer. Eric Mott returned home from vacation Wednesday and discovered his home had been ransacked. His gun safe had been broken into, and all of his weapons were gone. French's home in the Mayport area also was ransacked. Her weapons were gone, as well as her 2015 Dodge Dart. The first sighting of Logan Mott was from a surveillance camera at a gas station in south-central Pennsylvania. Images of Mott and his grandmother's Dodge were captured early afternoon Thursday. A warrant was issued for the boy's arrest for a charge of auto theft. Little is known about French's death, but the sheriff's office confirmed to the media that Mott was wanted for questioning. According to the Florida Times-Union, detectives found evidence of foul play inside Mott's home, and the grave containing the body was discovered in Mott's yard on Thanksgiving. Mott and his grandmother were supposed to be at the airport Wednesday to pick up Mott's father and his father's girlfriend, but they never showed. 
Mott also had skipped school last Monday and Tuesday. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is assisting in the investigation. Coming up, I'll discuss a pair of wacky burglary stories out of West Pasco County. Authorities said they arrested a man last Monday in Newport Ritchie after he had inexplicably climbed into bed next to a sleeping woman he had never met. That home invasion was the last of a series he had committed that day, according to the Pasco Sheriff's Office. 42-year-old Russell Smith faces three felony charges after he entered homes on three different streets located near the corner of Little Road and State Road 52. Deputies said when he entered his last house, he drank beer from the refrigerator and took 10 milligrams of diazepam, an anti-anxiety medication. Then he got into the woman's bed. Two days after that, another burglary suspect was arrested by the Pasco Sheriff's Office. An arrest report stated he had tried to break into a vehicle occupied by deputies. 49-year-old Stephen Titland was arrested quickly. This is Lindsay Logue of ABC Action News in Tampa, who was nearly overcome with laughter when she mentioned the part about Titland trying to commit burglary directly in front of law enforcement. The burglary suspect, uh, Stephen Titland, deputies say he also tried to break into uh, unmarked Pasco Sheriff's deputy vehicles in Newport Ritchie. Didn't notice the deputy inside. He's been arrested, facing charges this morning. Titland was on Morrow Street in Newport Ritchie, and the vehicle was occupied by members of the agency's strategic targeted area response team. Titland was arrested, and deputies said he was the same suspect responsible for a series of attempted vehicle break-ins in neighboring Trinity. At the time of his arrest, Titland was on felony probation for a burglary conviction in Pinellas County. Coming up, I'll discuss the shocking home invasion that led to the shooting of NFL star Sean Taylor. Miami-Dade prosecutor Marie Mato said during the trial of Eric Rivera, one of the five men charged in the death of Sean Taylor, that Rivera and his small army of burglars entered Taylor's home searching for a pot of gold. They knew Taylor was a sports celebrity. They knew he was generous with his money, and they figured no one was home and they'd find all kinds of expensive items to steal. Instead, Taylor wound up dead, and all five suspects wound up with murder convictions and prison sentences ranging from 18 years to life. Taylor, whose NFL career was cut short after barely more than three and a half seasons, missed out on fulfilling his full potential. He never got to build a Hall of Fame resume that his teammates and coaches felt he would inevitably do. He never got to marry Jackie Garcia, the girl from high school he fell madly in love with. And he never got to see his 18-month-old daughter grow up. The news of Sean Taylor devastated the Washington Redskins organization and its fan base. It also deeply affected those coaches, teammates, and friends he had at the University of Miami, where he had earned All-American honors. 
That shooting 10 years ago wasn't the first time Taylor was on the wrong end of a firearm. Here he is in one hauntingly prescient moment, telling a reporter how dramatically things change from a single gunshot. Scary situation for you down in Florida. I heard you were, in fact, shot at. Did that make everything a little more real? How did that change you? Well, you know, I'd rather not comment on it. It's just, you know, uh, you've seen a couple players in, in the last couple of weeks, you know, be subjects to shootings. And it's just a life-changing thing with, with one shot of a bullet or whatever the case is. You know, it changes lives. During the first 10 years of his life, Taylor was raised by his mother. He lived in a loving home with his three half-siblings. Taylor was known to be precocious, curious, and protective of his family, even as a child. Then unexpectedly, his mother came down with a debilitating illness, which forced him to live with his father. Being away from his mother and siblings hurt him. When he became famous, Taylor was known to be insular and untrusting. Those close to him said that part of his personality was forged when he was separated from his mother. Taylor's father, Pedro, who is now the chief of police for Florida City, a Miami suburb, still had a major influence on his son. According to NFL Films, Taylor's athletic abilities were noticed early, and his father came up with daily workout regimens that helped Taylor maximize those abilities. While at Gulliver Prep, Taylor was a star running back and defensive back. He was considered the number one prospect in Miami-Dade County, one of the most fertile recruiting grounds in the country. Predictably, he was recruited by the university up the road, which had a long legacy of snatching up local kids, coaching them up, and then winning national championships. Taylor enrolled at Miami in 2001 and played for head coach Larry Coker. He was one of four true freshmen to play for the team, although his playing time was limited. At the time, he played behind NFL superstar Ed Reed. The Canes won a national title during Taylor's freshman year. During his sophomore year, they went back to the national title game. He had two interceptions in that game against the Ohio State Buckeyes, but his team lost in double overtime. His last season at Miami was one long highlight reel for Taylor and included three interceptions returned for touchdowns, which remains a school record. Taylor was drafted fifth overall by the Washington Redskins. He was drafted while I was a reporter at the Journal Newspapers, which later was bought out and relaunched as the Washington Examiner. Taylor didn't have a chilly relationship with the media. He froze them out. He simply would not talk to them. Taylor was arrested by a Virginia State trooper in October 2004 on suspicion of DUI in Fairfax County. I covered his trial in Fairfax County General District Court. The dashcam video played during the trial showed various instances where Taylor was rude and uncooperative with the trooper. He was acquitted for the DUI charge, but convicted of refusing to take a breathalyzer. I, alone with a gaggle of television news reporters, requested a comment from him outside the courtroom. He told us, quote, You know I don't talk to you people, and walked quickly toward the elevators. 
he appealed his conviction to circuit court, where it got overturned. His run-ins with the law didn't end there. In June 2005, he was charged with aggravated assault with a firearm and misdemeanor battery. Friends say Taylor confronted those suspected of stealing a pair of ATVs from him. He decided to take matters into his own hands after law enforcement failed to respond. One year later, he agreed to a plea bargain with the state attorney's office. He pleaded no contest to two misdemeanor offenses and paid a fine. He served 18 months probation. Those issues I just described would come to light again in the immediate aftermath of Taylor's shooting. More on that later. In spite of his off-the-field problems, Taylor shined on the field while a member of the Redskins. And in spite of those achievements, he also had moments on the field that drew the ire of his coaches and the league office. He deliberately violated the league's uniform code more than once, and during one nationally televised playoff game, a January 2006 wildcard contest against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he spit on Buccaneers running back Michael Pittman. Taylor got ejected from that game, but not until after he scored a touchdown on a fumble recovery that sealed the win for his team. The next season was disappointing for Washington, but Taylor earned a Pro Bowl invite. It was during the Pro Bowl game in Hawaii that Taylor made another big impression. Buffalo Bills punter Brian Mormon, playing for the AFC, opted to run a fake. Taylor, playing for the NFC, zeroed in on him. The CBS announcers went bananas over the collision. When the replay was shown on the Jumbotron, the fans in the stands also had a big reaction. Brian Mormon is going to fake it on the run. Oh! Oh, Sean Taylor. Sean Taylor came from about 30 yards back and just ran right to the runner two and through. The same game was aired in Japan. Here's the reaction from the Japanese broadcasters. The hard-hitting Taylor was the type of player who begged his coaches to put him on the special teams unit. And that's a rare kind of player. He thrived on hitting ball carriers. It's what he lived for. Here is John Kime, also formerly of the Examiner, and he covered Taylor's entire career in Washington. Taylor was all the kind of guy who wanted to be on. You don't see this all the time, but he was, you know, he's becoming a star, and he was obviously a standout player. He wanted to stay on special teams. He wanted to be on kick coverage because he wanted to go down and set a tone for the game. So he asked to stay on that stuff. Other guys ask off that. But that's, like I said, that's why coaches and teammates really liked him and appreciated him. But for those reasons, you know, like I said, you brought up the media had a different relationship with him. But this is as a football player, it's why he mattered to the guys in that room. While all this success was happening, the media had little interaction with Taylor. And it wasn't because of a lack of trying or a lack of desire on the part of reporters. The man making so many big plays on defense was someone the media were eager to talk to. It just wasn't reciprocated. Kime, 
who now covers the Redskins for ESPN, is among those who never got to know Sean Taylor, the man, as well as he wanted. You were around the guy, you knew the guy, and whatever, like for me personally, I admired the football player because that's who I knew. I didn't know the person as well as you'd want to because I think Sean Taylor was a guy who didn't trust easily, and the last group he was go- that he was going to be trusting of were the media, and you know, that's fine, I don't blame him. Taylor's surly attitude wasn't just reserved for reporters. His teammates and coaches noticed it too. He didn't open up to too many people, at least not during the first three seasons he was in the league. But heading into the 2007 season, people in the Redskins locker room noticed a big change in Taylor. He seemed to have grown a lot during the offseason. What I remember is I'm talking to an offensive lineman, John Jansen. I remember talking to John Jansen about Sean Taylor a couple of years before his death. Just because you're like you're curious, what kind of guy is he? Because this is what we see, we don't know. What do you think? He's like, yeah, he's not really someone who talks to a lot of guys, and it's like he didn't really have much of a relationship with them because like he just was kind of kept to himself around a lot of people and all that. So I talked to John Jansen after Sean's death, and. And I asked him about that, he goes, no, he was he had completely changed. And so he had reached out to a lot more players and had started to be, you know, it, it, it started to blossom into the kind of person that he wanted to be and that others thought he could become. Taylor's heart started to thaw, courtesy of two women in his life. While a teenager, Taylor fell deeply in love with Jackie Garcia, a soccer player who went on to play for the Miami Hurricanes. She's the niece of Academy Award-nominated actor Andy Garcia. During his days off, Taylor would fly from Washington to Miami or to wherever Jackie was playing soccer. If she happened to be playing in Charlottesville or Blacksburg, he'd make the long drive to go see her. He'd sacrifice hours of sleep so he could travel hundreds of miles to be with her. She even made him want to learn Spanish. But that didn't come easy. Years into their courtship, the couple had a child, a daughter, who they named Jackie. Her birth was the impetus to Taylor's maturation as a human being. As a child, Taylor saw himself as his mother's protector and his sister's protector. When that family unit broke apart, he was lost. The birth of his daughter gave him his center of gravity back. Taylor's teammates saw a different Sean Taylor when he reported to camp in the summer of 2007. When you talk to guys, whether it's coaches, teammates, guys who do really well, the turning point was his daughter. And, uh, you know, his daughter was born, I believe it was some point in 2006, I want to say. So it wasn't like right before the 2007 season, but her birth started to move him down his path. It just, it just helped him mature and um, helped him kind of, I think, focus his life a lot more because at that point, even with football, he became a lot more focused. And again, you talk to coaches, and the stuff that he started to do in the subsequent time after his daughter's birth was just a lot different. The way he studied, the way he worked, everything. Like he would, the, before the 2007 season, I was talking to, um, I remember. Again, recently I talked to their special, excuse me, the secondary coach at the time, Steve Jackson, and he said the first, the first day that they returned, 
um, they they always do some boardroom work, classroom work, and he asked for people to go up on the, you know in front of the class, basically in front of the room, to go over some plays and answer questions. Sean never did that. He volunteered to do it first that year, so it was like for him it was like he goes, he goes, the light just went on, and you could just tell from that moment on he was different. During his fourth NFL season, Taylor put on a clinic on how to play the free safety position. That was evident whenever he faced off with the elite offensive players in the league. Terrell Owens, who was one of the most physically imposing wide receivers in NFL history, was clearly rattled by Taylor's physical play. Kime remembers. There was a game where he just hit him hard every time he was around him. And a couple times, I think he may... I don't, I don't remember if he threw any penalties. He probably should have once or twice if he didn't. But he was going to hit him hard every single time. And he did that on purpose. He wanted to get inside his head. And, you know, I can tell you that his coaches and teammates clearly thought he had gotten inside his head. And I remember going back and watching this game recently and just seeing it where, you know, Owen's going out of bounds. And Taylor hits him at a point where it's like he shouldn't be hitting him there, but he did it for a reason, and, you know, that is, he was a big-time hit. Perhaps Taylor's best game of his professional career came in Week 6 against Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers. One of the things I did recently was write about a game in his last year that I felt was, not only that I felt, but, you know, coaches felt was probably the best game of his career and the game that kind of was like, showed the point of where he had come and where he was going. It was a Green Bay game in 2007 where he intercepted Brett Favre twice and should have picked him off five times. The reason I picked out that game because it was finally the mental side catching up to him. And the way he was baiting Favre into throws, he would show a blitz, he would show a certain look, knowing that he, you know, knowing how Favre would react to that look and knowing that he could get back to a certain point because he was fast enough and athletic enough to do that so he could bait Favre into throws. And, you know, coaches would be like, what's he doing? But at that point, the players all said, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing to Favre and the reactions off it, and he had never been able to do that before to that degree. So a lot of that stuff just came off his natural, some natural instincts, some athleticism, but also finally the mental part of the game. Taylor's game was soaring. But weeks later, something ominous happened back in Palmetto Bay while his girlfriend and daughter were home. On November 18th, Taylor's house was burglarized. Somebody pried open a window and tried to break into a safe located in the master bedroom. Taylor was in Washington, D.C. at the time, nursing an injured knee. After hearing the news of a break-in, Taylor flew to Miami as soon as he could. The talks he had been having with Jackie about moving to Virginia started to get more serious. Here is Jackie Garcia telling the NFL Network about the thoughts that were in her head the last night she spent with the father of her child. You know, he just, it was like the sense of like peace inside of him. You know, I don't... It was just like, it was, I remember like going to sleep that night and being like, God, like if it could just be like this every day, like, wow, you know, like my life is going to be amazing. But eight days after the first burglary, Taylor's home was targeted again. In all, 
five suspects were involved in the break-in, and they traveled from Fort Myers. The ringleader was Jason Scott Mitchell, who at the time was a friend of the boyfriend of Taylor's sister. Weeks before the shooting, Mitchell had hung out with Taylor and stayed at his home for four days. He attended a birthday celebration in which he saw Taylor give $10,000 in cash to two of his siblings. They were gifts. Mitchell was convinced that Taylor had a lot of cash lying around, so he set up the November 18th burglary. Unsatisfied, he decided to hit the house again on November 26th. Neither he nor his accomplices expected to see Taylor at home. Taylor's attorney, Richard Sharpstein, later told the media what happened. He was home with his uh, girlfriend, uh, Jackie Garcia, and their 18-month-old daughter. Uh, They heard noise in the living room, were awakened, uh, got up. Sean locked the bedroom door, went under his bed for a small machete that he keeps under there. By the time he got to the bedroom door, it was burst open, and two shots were fired. One hit him in the upper leg, and one hit the wall. He was bleeding profusely from the leg. Apparently, his femoral artery was hit, and he was bleeding out. Many people were more optimistic than they probably should have been. During the night he was in the hospital, Taylor moved his eyes. He squeezed his hands. Doctors considered those signs that Taylor's condition was improving. Subsequent statements were given by the family and by the Redskins organization that Taylor was making a turn for the better. Taylor's cousin, David Walsh, who also was interviewed by the NFL Network, had little optimism based on what he saw inside Taylor's hospital room. Although, you know, there were reports saying that, you know, he was doing better, it didn't look good at all. Um, they were giving him a blood transfusion and and around the bed they had like sheets and as 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 the um as the blood, you know, they put it in, it was just coming coming out. Among the news and sports media converging to Miami was then-USA Today NFL reporter Skip Wood. He had just covered a game in Tampa Bay and was at the airport waiting on his flight back to D.C. when he saw the news on TV about Taylor being hospitalized for a gunshot wound. He immediately called his editor, who then changed his flight itinerary. Wood hopped on the first plane to Miami. After he got off the plane, he found the first television he could find inside Miami International Airport. The news had been updated. Taylor was dead. We were basically first on the scene, and we and and and, and we knew what was happening. We knew all of all the uh, the details. I mean, the, the the guy he did not even have a gun for crying out loud. He defended himself with a machete. Wood visited Taylor's home in Palmetto Bay. Hundreds of people had lined the street. They mostly were in a fog over what had happened. Wood interviewed some law enforcement officers, took notes of everything he saw, and left. Instead of going to his hotel to write the story, he made a detour to Pedro Taylor's neighborhood, hoping to speak to Taylor's father. He got directions to his home and saw some TV reporters standing in the street. 
Pedro Taylor was home, but no one from the media had stepped forward to talk to him yet, so Wood strolled up to the front porch and introduced himself. He expected to find a devastated father. Instead, Pedro was friendly, almost gregarious. I was surprised, and he, he put his arm around me and said, Hey, man, I appreciate all the support. And then the other media people slowly kind of started walking up as well, but uh, he was very matter-of-fact at his answers. I'm not sure the total the total recognition of what had happened had really sunk in, but, you know, by the same token, he's a seasoned cop. You know, he's a cop. Wood's spirits were probably lifted by the cavalcade of friends and neighbors who had come by to pay their respects. I went from one kind of surreal scene to another, but it was almost like a block party. I don't want to really drive that home too much, but just kids playing and neighbors coming by to pay their respects. and just It was not a scene of great morning at all. It was just um, kind of uh, people just uh, you know, gathered and mingling and laughing and sharing stories and things. Meanwhile, the Redskins team and coaching staff were demoralized. They lost their next game at home to the lowly Buffalo Bills, dropping their record to 5-7. and seven. The next day, Taylor's funeral was held at Farmed Arena, on the campus of Florida International University in Miami. A total of 3,000 mourners packed the arena. The guests paying their respects included the NFL commissioner, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and even O.J. Simpson, whose children attended school with Taylor. Also among the mourners were 300 members of the Redskins organization. Team owner Dan Snyder paid for all of the accommodations. The thing that struck me was that when the funeral was held, that Snyder, the owner Dan Snyder, he pulled the entire organization, every player, every coach, down to Miami for, for, for the actual service. And that, that, um, that had a big impact on Sean Taylor's friends and his family. And you can talk about Dan Snyder all you want to. He's not exactly the most popular guy here in here in Washington, but uh, I'm not sure how many teams would have would have made that commitment just to send the whole operation down to someone's funeral. Kime didn't attend the funeral, but he was at Redskins Park when the team returned home. Emotionally, they looked spent. I did not go down to the funeral, um, but I was at Redskins Park when they returned and just how drained they all were. And just like the look on the faces and just, you know, again, completely drained. And at that point, you're thinking, how are they going to not only play a game, but get through the rest of the season? The team's next game was on a Thursday, a road game against the Chicago Bears. Starting quarterback Jason Campbell got injured during the game, and he was forced to miss the remainder of the season. It appeared there was no way for the Redskins to keep their season afloat. But the team rallied with backup quarterback Todd Collins. He filled in and played the best football of his professional career. The Skins rallied to beat the Bears and then reeled off three more consecutive wins to finish the season 9-7 and and make the playoffs for the second time in three years. The run didn't last, 
even though Washington erased a 13-point Seattle Seahawks deficit to go up by one in the fourth quarter, the Seahawks regained their footing and went on to score 22 unanswered points to win the game 35-14. It would be the last game of Hall of Fame coach Joe Gibbs' career. It's probably obvious to everyone listening to this podcast that your host is a die-hard, lifelong Redskins fan. That late-season rally in 2007, in the wake of the worst imaginable tragedy to befall an active Redskins player, is something that should be celebrated more. But it's hardly remembered. I tend to think it's because the sadness following Sean Taylor's death remains so palpable. It overwhelms everything. The impact of Taylor's death was felt league-wide. Every person in the organization felt impacted by this. I don't know if it was the suddenness of it or the randomness of it, just or the fact that it was a reality check that, you know, this is not just la-la-la land in the National Football League. This is, this is real life here. This is some serious that just went down. And uh, it was really a bad time across the league, too. People had a hard time really wrapping their minds about what, you know, what the, what the heck had just happened. And it's just, it's, I mean, it happened 10, 10 years ago, but to this day, it still just seems just so surreal. So, uh, I mean, it's hard to really put into words just how bizarre it was. As for the murder suspects, all five were quickly captured. Mitchell was arrested, as was gunman Eric Rivera, who was 17 at the time. The same went for Charles Wardlow, Timmy Lee Brown, and Venja Hunte. During Rivera's trial in October 2013, Jackie Garcia took the stand and identified each of the shooters by their photos. She then gave a tearful, vivid account of what happened the night of November 26th 2007. She remembered being roused from a deep sleep by Taylor, who asked her where the machete was. In a whispery tone, she told him it was beside the bed. Their 18-month-old daughter was lying with them. Taylor grabbed the machete and headed toward the bedroom door, where he had heard the noise. Jackie called 911. She heard a gunshot and then a scream. Jackie stayed hidden under the covers while on the phone with 911. After a few moments, she crept toward the door and found her boyfriend lying on the floor, face down. Blood was everywhere. He was gasping for air, but unable to speak. Jackie had to run outside to let police and paramedics into the gated home. She was frantic. A footprint that was on the door was matched to Rivera's sneakers. Prosecutors said he had kicked open the door and then shot Taylor. Garcia's uncle, famed actor Andy Garcia, called Taylor a hero. He credited him for protecting his girlfriend and daughter. Rivera was convicted, as were his four co-defendants. Rivera got 57 years in prison. Mitchell got life. Wardlow received 30 years. Hunte 
the only defendant to accept a plea deal, got 29 years. Brown, who was 16 at the time of the shooting, received the most lenient sentence. He was given 18 years. Before all the facts came out, before Taylor's funeral, and even while Taylor lay in a hospital bed fighting for his life, several high-profile members of the sports media brought up Taylor's perceived checkered history and referred to the shooting as a consequence of it. In reality, there was no such connection. It was one of the earliest indications that the sports media had shifted from a let's show the highlights culture to let's have a hot take culture. One sports media member particularly bothered by it was John Kime. To him, it put a lasting stain on his profession. Yes, I think it has to be because there was a rush to judgment about what happened in a situation where I think we're all we're constantly reminded of the fact that sometimes you don't have to have a quick take on a horrible situation because you don't know the entire story just yet. And I, you know, I, I'm I'm not a believer in hot takes or anything like that. And you know, people go with the information they have at the time. But I think it's it's it should it's it's I would add it to the list of times where you should be reminded that find out what the facts are first and then react because a lot of times things change especially after an initial reporting of it and um, you know like you said I mean the reason why he was down there is not that he was involved in um, some dang it or some criminal activity it's because his house had been broken into like the week before and he wanted to go down and protect his his property. He wanted to make sure it didn't happen again, and his wife and his, his fiance and, and their child were there, so he wanted to protect them. So that's why he was down there. And it's like, you know, you also hear the phrase "wrong place at the wrong time." Well, no, he was in the right. You know, he was in the right place for this house. You know, it was it was it was a criminal activity by somebody else. But yeah, I mean, and you know, there was he had a background that certainly he had to um, emerge from to be portrayed differently and he was just starting to do that uh, and there was again certainly things in his background that you know people could do that but yeah there was a, definitely a rush to um, paint a certain way and it's unfortunate because it's, it's it wasn't it wasn't accurate so yeah I mean you'd have to say it's a stain and that, again you'd like to think that people learn from those but I think it happens too often still in 2008 Taylor was posthumously inducted into the Redskins' Ring of Fame. In 2012, to celebrate the team's 80th anniversary, Taylor was selected one of the 80 all-time greatest Redskins players. Last month, Taylor was inducted in the University of Miami's Ring of Honor. He was inducted alongside such football royalty as Michael Irvin, Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, and Warren Sapp. The one who accepted the honor on his behalf was Taylor's 12-year-old daughter, Jackie. I'm honored to be here to receive this award on behalf of my father, Sean Taylor. My dad worked very hard in his life to achieve his dreams. He believed that getting to, getting to the next level meant working hard on his game while everyone else was resting. I'm so proud of how hard my father worked to receive this honor. If he were here with us today, I know he would feel so proud and honored to be inducted in the Ring of Honor. Thank you for listening. 
tune in next week when I profile the case of Ecuadorian businessman Nelson Serrano, who 20 years ago murdered four people, execution style, in the town of Bristow. You won't want to miss it. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.